Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Anna Fitzpatrick. Anna has written for the New York Times magazine, Rookie Magazine, Vice, Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, The Hairpin, Hazlitt, The Village Voice, The Believer, The National Post, The Globe and Mail, and many, many more. Anna is the author of the children's picture book, Margot and the Moon Landing, illustrated by Erica Medina, which was published by Anna Press in 2020. Her most recent book is the novel Good Girl, which was published by Flying Books in 2022. Good Girl was a Relit Award finalist and a Globe and Mail Best Book of 2022. Writing about the novel, BuzzFeed said that Fitzpatrick takes romance tropes and flips them on their head, then slaps them. Anne and I talk about the mix of luck, hard work, and privilege that defines her writing career, about how her next book began life as a sequel to Good Girl, before her agent advised her to scrap the idea, and about how strange and often unhelpful it is that certain kinds of writers get lumped together as part of literary trends. You work as a freelance writer. I, I split my time. I freelance and I work uh, in the in the spacing store uh, for a winter. Oh, okay. Right. So, and it's great. They're uh, very flexible with... Um, what if I end up getting an assignment or a contract, I have been able to work less there. And when things are light, as you know, frequently happens in, in freelancing where everything is very inconsistent, I work a little more. So it's it's good to um I got really into urbanism over the pandemic and Okay. <laughs> it uh became a, a different there, there there's there's none of that in in my book if uh anyone listens to this, like oh sick an urbanist novel but um <laughs> you let me sell my book at the store because it takes place in toronto and we have a section for a toronto novels so well done <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a fictionalized version of toronto where there are neighborhoods named and there were little discussions where like she takes the streetcar to work and then my editor and I had a discussion of like, oh, well, where is her work located? Because the streetcar's only run so far. But <laughs> so it is a little bit in my book. And it did luck out that when the spacing store was hiring and I was like, I'm just trying to read every book I can on this subject. This is how I learn. I don't um, figure it was cheaper than grad school. I mm. uh, <laughs> I started working there during the pin, like in the last year. And yes, I... Um, got them to order my book and put it if you walk in the spacing store it's right on display so you can buy my sex novel (laughs) that's a very smart move is to like uh it and to ensure that you're up there my protagonist is a bookseller and because I was a bookseller um throughout my 20s and 
I hear from booksellers that they love, they're like, oh, it's so real. Like the customers and the conversations. And then mm-hmm. I, that was a great move on my part to appeal <laughs> to booksellers because now they like it and now they will sell my book. <laughs> and that's my number one advice to first time novelists is make your character a plucky bookseller and talk shit about customers. <laughs> That's very, that's like retrospectively or accidentally savvy. That's, that's brilliantly savvy. Your first experience kind of writing, publishing, publicly writing anyway, writing anything that, that to be consumed was uh, a live journal journal. You were writing a lot on live journal. I mean, I spent a lot of time on like forums and stuff in high school. I was, you know, like a, as I said before, like undiagnosed depression, just spending a lot of time by myself so even before live journal I had like a geosites page and I had um um MSN messenger let you have a little blog and I would like and any of my friends could read that and and you know I wasn't I had a lot of people on MSN messenger that because you know you had everyone you know and I was not necessarily a cool or social person but I would write my little like little rants and and little journal entries um my private live journal was like a diary where I was kind of like learning to write and learning to like craft narratives out of stuff that was happening in my life right, and right. learning how to express things. But the community aspect when the internet aspect was really about trying to find cool shit and learn about ex- all the, all these things that didn't exist at my high school or didn't exist in, um in, in South Keys or didn't seem to. It taught me how to write, taught me how to, you know, get in the habit of it but it also just gave me an outlet for exploring obsessions and meeting people and finding a way to communicate those obsessions with more people there were times where stuff would happen and I would be like oh how how am I going to write about this but there were times where I was just like you know just walls of text and I was like I'm sure no one was reading those but I just it was like a legitimate diary did it also doing that that much writing in your teens also kind of push you to create a writing persona yeah but I don't think that started there because I always had like paper diaries and ones with a lock and key and I was you know I read them and I was very conscious of an audience and sometimes that was practical because you know my had siblings and sometimes they would we would fuck with each other and my diary could have been read but yes, I was the fact that you could read other people's journals and see how other people were recording their experiences and that there was a social aspect. It did kind of make me aware of, of how I was recording these. You start looking for for patterns in your life and you start like I just you start building narratives. Yeah. Where, where... And I mean, the, the point that I can remember that the most starkly. To the point where I then felt complicated about it was when I was 18 I was in San Francisco with my parents and we were crossing the Golden Gate Bridge and the man in front of me climbed over the bridge and fell to his death and I was right there and I saw the whole thing it was very heavy sorry this trigger no my god suicide um and it was shocking and upsetting and the police came and I was because I saw it I made a statement but I mean they they have so many at the and I remember being in a daze and crossing the bridge and I was like how am I gonna write about this and then I was aware that that was my first reaction was like how like this you know this person's life just ended in front of me and my 
first thought was what narrative am I and and then I that, that I had that I had that awareness that that was my first thought and I was like oh that's a little fucked up that that yeah. like but at the same time giving grace to my myself at 18 it was like how I processed things like it was how things in my life made sense once I started writing about them and not just for an audience but just like finding words to to express them and I think that was when I remembered the most starkly of like turning this experience into a narrative when I felt very complicated about it where like I don't think it's a bad thing to write about the the things that happen to you and the upsetting things that you experience in your life but it was also like again this this is someone else's tragedy this is so, something like that I don't think that when this man died his final moments are like oh what's this girl's life journal going to be about it um and I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I am aware of like you know turning my life into content um in ways that with live journal it felt a bit more honest because I was you know writing a diary for a dozen people that was not monetized it's a lot slipperier now but I do think that with my live journal it was very much figuring out that barrier between like what is performance and what is what is me writing and what is like making art versus exploiting other people's stories for my own or or what is processing a thing and connecting with people versus getting attention based on yeah I and I still don't have answers for all those things both of the books that you've published to date your your children's book and your your novel they're both very much focused on that like someone trying to figure out how to communicate properly with the, with the outside world having these obsessions having this um this need to communicate but it's slightly off <laughs> from yeah. from community friends other people and it's and it's trying to find the right language to 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 communicate that to the outside world so it feels like that's still your your core concern, at least for the, for the, for up, up until these two books. I mean, maybe your next book is entirely historical and it's, a, <laughs> you know, it's, it's set in 1837 um, and yeah. I mean, it would still be about the same things. Yeah, no, thank you for noticing that because I do feel my, my two books, they're very different, but they are kind of the same in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you about the, the picture book because you had, you'd been writing about children's books and about picture books for, for years. Yeah. So it's not, there's no leap. Yeah, there. No, that... I was 22 when I was just finishing school. I got hired at Mabel's Fables bookstore in Toronto. In a, and again, I write, write about this in my, the article I have in Spacing this month, which is that Good Girl, the protagonist is a bookseller. And a lot of mm -hmm. that was based on my experiences working at Mabel's, but no one in the, it's not a children's bookstore in my novel. Um, right. And so everyone has guessed what bookstore it's supposed to be based on and no one has guessed Mabel's, which is... <laughs> It's like I did a great job of fictionalizing it. Um, the woman who would end up editing the first draft of my book, Emily Keeler at Flying Books, actually she became, for a while, she was the books editor at the National Post. I really owe mm -hmm. so much of my career to her. But um, I was starting to pitch articles because I had already been freelancing for years at that point, but I was starting to pitch articles about kids' books, places, and then I somehow talked myself into being like the kids' book critic at the Globe and Mail when I was, or no, the National <laughs> yeah. Post. And National Post. I was 24. And then 
she left when she left that job I ended up um doing stuff for the for the Globe and Mail so for a while I was like the authority on picture books in Canada which is funny and probably really frustrating to other people who had worked in the industry a lot longer, <laughs> but like I, mean, I took it seriously I did my research and I like try like I I did not um like like I tried to do it right which is how I I, I think I try to do that with a, every time I get an assignment and every time that I am especially reporting on a scene that I am not part of I will I will do everything I can to learn about it and and, and um, do it right so I did kind of become a kids book expert in that time and so an editor that I had worked with a different editor that I had worked with um sorry I'm jumping oh, yeah. around okay because the nature of publishing is that everyone has worked everywhere and it makes yes and everyone has so like but when I was 18 I started working at Warren Fashion Journal because of my blog and I was there till I was 25 and then the magazine folded but the editor Sarah Marie McMahon she ended up when she closed the magazine when um she was working at tight books in the kids book room there and we just as I was starting to work at Mabel's Fables so we had these adjacent kids book journeys and she started editing for Anik Press and she was like you gotta do a kids book for me because I know you have a bunch and I know you know um how kids books work so she kind of made me do it she was like just just <laughs> give me a script and like again she I didn't know what I was doing um I knew kids books well at that point but she helped me shape it so yeah it really is so my both my books were the result of like relationships that were formed in completely other spheres that um god bless these editors who had the patience and gave me way more time than they were probably getting compensated for to turn my piles of mush into manuscripts um so I'm very very lucky in that regard um and Good Girl had a similar uh kind of origin too where someone well, initially well, asked was, you was, to write it, it. it Emily Keeler who was my editor at the National Post who was editing my kids book column um and I had done all this stuff like she, like I just I guess I have been very good in my career of like writing for, for people who like writing for editors who are very ambitious and then as their careers get better I'm like I I still have those relationships um so and I mean I I have become friends with these people there there is that like it is but I do like to think that it is they're not just doing it as a favor to me as a friend that they are mm -hmm. they do like my work in some degree and they do want to keep working with me but yes it is there is a lot of luck to it. There is a lot of privilege of being in the right place at the right time. Um, and I don't want to downplay that. Um, though I do when younger people ask me how to be a writer, my thing is, you know, build community. Um, I'm was able to do that living in a city like Toronto where I could, you know, meet people and spend time with them. But I'm also, it was live journal when I was writing um, and making friendships and blogging and, that led to my first jobs and, and, and all that. So I'm not like, it does make me feel weird sometimes how much networking can be a part of getting your work out there. But also these people know lots of writers. It's not like they are asking every writer they know to write them a book and then publishing it. Well, it also is like, I did not meet these people because like my parents are friends with them or because we went to the same Ivy League school. Exactly. Yeah. That said, there still is a lot of privilege in the fact that 
you know, having the time to put in or to do unpaid writing or cheap paid writing at the beginning, which is what I did a lot of in my teens and, and early 20s with blogging and with indie magazines. That is a huge privilege. And I think that is one of the biggest barriers in our industry of like, I am not going to apologize for having built connections that I've built or having um, the career that I have, but I am going to acknowledge that there are ways that a lot of people are clocked out of that just because they don't have the the time and resources. And when I was 24, I tried to correct that in a little bit. And um, I started a Facebook group. It was for women writers because at that time I was already I had done some underpaid internships. I was aware of like whisper networks around certain editors. And and I just, you know, I wanted to support young women trying to get in the industry who maybe didn't start a blog at the right point or didn't, you know, do the things that I did. And I would, the idea was people can invite friends and friends of friends and you didn't have to be a professional writer to join, but it skyrocketed to 30,000 people in a week. Oh, I was working, I was working full time at the bookstore stuff was happening like you know there was infighting happening I couldn't moderate the conflict like it became a thing and I was getting press inquiries I I mean I still in one of my like more punk moments I turned on an interview with Vogue but I um like I was just because I didn't know what I was doing I just I I mean I think it speaks to a need that people wanted this thing to happen but um it exploded more than I knew what to do with and I don't regret starting it and I'll take credit for that, but I did not want to be known as the girl who started a Facebook group and was getting all this press for it. I wanted, you know, to be known on the merits of my writing, but I was very careful and I am glad I did this, that I did not coast on that. I did not want to be, I I didn't want to capitalize on this thing that I had done by accident. I was like, I wanted to get in through my writing. I mean, the group became a clusterfuck just because of how big it was in such a short amount of time. But I do hear from people who did meet editors or did meet mentors or did meet friends through that that really helped their career. And that makes me really happy. But yes, no, I do think it speaks to the fact that there are so many barriers in this industry and the biggest barriers are the time you have to put in. And also just like I've been freelancing most of my 20s. in my 30s, I'm 33 now, and I've had other jobs, but I remember working jobs, having a shift, and then getting an assignment from Rolling Stone that they wanted on a really tight deadline. And I'm like, well, I'm working my job that I can't take time off. And then quitting my day job so I could freelance full time, and then places will take six months to pay you, or mm-hmm. you'll have a working relationship with an editor and the magazine will fold, and then you're, you're shit out of luck. And I do not make a lot of money. I'm able to live how I do because my rent is cheap and because I have no long-term plan right now, which is fucked and I need to change that. <laughs> but I do want to be transparent that, yes, it is a very unequal industry. And the fact that I do, like, I support myself, but I know that I can move in if shit hits the fan and I like get evicted that I can move in with my parents or I can move in with my partner and that I don't I don't have kids that I'm supporting um and it really shapes who ends up getting to work in this industry and and I am surviving in it but just barely and I am someone who is on on the luckier end and I do want to keep I do want to be very loud about that and very clear because I 
get a lot of people asking me how to do what I do. And I'm like, fucking privilege. Like I just. Mm -hmm. Not to take away from that, but it's a mix of privilege, but also a lot of sacrifice. I mean, again, you're not, you're, you're doing this with this understanding that in, in 18 months, it could all dry up. But like you said, you weren't, you made all these connections through work, through doing work and through the actual thing that you were, you weren't meeting them at polo matches or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and like and like I don't want to you get weren't the boss's perfect. kid in other words yeah and like I I and I, I I've had like no one in my family works in media my my mom is an immigrant um my but again they were supportive of me like they were I was supported through university I graduated with head student loans and that is huge and that puts me above so many people so like I don't want to downplay the hard work or the the fact that you know I was writing professionally since I was sixteen, and I was you know putting all my free time into that, um, because there is that, and there is, and I it it has been jarring to see how many people working in media are like, oh you're fucking John K or like not to you know throw John K under the bus, but I will. Um, <laughs> I just like to realize how many people come from media families or whatever, but I still feel like I I don't want to downplay the work, but I don't want to downplay the privilege either yeah. and it they're both um, there they're both active yeah. and they're both they're both critically important and there are probably a lot of people who look at me and are like oh she like who might dismiss what i've been able to do because of my advantages i've had and they i mean they wouldn't be wrong we've kind of gone a long way to i want to bring us back to the books themselves the process of actually putting them out in the world because the the children's book uh margo and the moon landing came out at possibly the worst possible time April, April, 2020. Yes. Which to my mind, I'm going to guess means that until Good Girl came out, you hadn't really had that full experience of publishing a book. I mean, you did, but you didn't get to kind of physically be there and experience it in person. It was probably this slightly distant, you know, uh, disassociative almost experience of this book is out there, but who knows what's happening to it. I was going to say, and it was kind of nice. It was not nice. Let me go on the record to say the pandemic was very bad. Um, But in terms of putting, like, it was very, like, dipping my toe in. It was also a very convenient excuse to have a book come out in April 2020. Because, like, if it didn't sell that well, and my my kid's book did fine, but it wasn't a a smash hit. But I could be like, oh, well, there was a pandemic. So (laughs) that built an excuse. Um, You get to put that asterisk beside the the number. Um, Although, please, if you're listening, buy Margo and the Moon Landing. I yeah I still have not broken even on that book um but I also had a smaller advance with um with Good Girl which because of the indie and I did break through on that so it's funny to like decide what what a book is a success or what what did did well um because I've sold more of Margo than than Good Girl but um yeah no uh the launch party for Good Girl was so I was recovering from COVID like I had COVID and I was better but I was still a little tired all the time and I remember being a little bit overwhelmed in that regard but so many people from so many different factions of my life came out like old coworkers and friends and people that I know from the queer community and the kink community and my fucking parents were there and like it felt like um because for context, there's there's a, a lot of kink in my book, which right. we yeah, can't talk course. about to this point, but if someone's listening, <laughs> like, wait a second, what was that? Um, but 
I felt and like it was a small like it was an invite only again I'm doing air quotes if readers can't see it was an invite only launch at the store but it was kind of like informal like it was it, it wasn't open to the public but it was I was pretty liberal with who I invited I mean I have never wanted to get married in my life like that's just not a thing that I care about and I'm at the age where like friends of mine are getting married and I'm seeing them having these big parties or I'm going to these big parties where they look beautiful and everyone is celebrating them and I'm like oh I never want to be in a contract obligation with someone but I'm like oh the big party seems nice it's like right. uh, it celebrates you and I mean a wedding without the marriage that's what you're book looking for was not a, you know a wedding it was two hours at a bookstore with a cheese tray but it was if like it felt great I was like oh I wrote a book and people are at celebrating it and it was all people that I loved and people from different factions and people like meeting each other and um it felt even though I was like kind of burnt out because of the, you know, the COVID and the, <laughs> it was such a nice night and friends were buying my book and getting me to sign them. And I was trying to sign, I was trying to personalize each one. And I was, um, I was, my brain was kind of foggy and I was like writing yearbook quotes, but I was the only one writing them. And I was like trying to <laughs> reference private jokes and like none of nothing I signed in any of the books makes sense. And one day someone's going to find one at a thrift store and be like, what the fuck is she talking about? But <laughs> beautiful. And again, because it was out with a small press and was kind of a slow burn. Like I did get bad reviews. Like I did check the Goodreads and there's, you know, a lot of people who don't like it. And I have not checked the Goodreads in like eight months, but I was going to say that's you, yeah. you check it first and then you never go back. Yeah. I, I get um, burned. And I, and I have seen like a few bad reviews on like social media, but because it is a smaller book, um, I think it's sort of finding its way to people. Like, it's not like, you know, it's not getting a big Penguin Random House, Heather's Pick, Indigo book where everyone is reading it and everyone is weighing in. And there, there is this kind of anticlimactic moment where, oh, it's out in the world. And you think there's going to be this moment where oh everyone's running my book and now I'm going to hear about it and that obviously does not happen um but I do I have gotten emails I have gotten people reach out and it's really touching and I feel that Emily Keeler and Martha Sharp the um who owns and runs Flying Books my publisher they as I said both of them put I really lucked out with them they both helped me make the book that I wanted to make and they both it flying books was a labor of love um especially for Martha who's the one who's uh, still running it but like she champions her book so hard um she does way more than you know I, I've heard stories from friends who are with both indie publishers and uh big six big five whatever we're at now uh big four um where unless you're writing the like marquee book of the season, your book can get lost in the shuffle mm -hmm. and to have people believe in it and champion it and treasure it and advocate for it um, has been really, um, again, it feels like a blessing and a privilege. And I'm not saying that to dismiss the work I put in, but it does feel like such a great gift to have that. Um, and I hope everyone's first novel experience is that, <laughs> that magical and that nice. When I first started writing the draft of this book in 2016, I was like, well, this is just for me. No one can read this because it's like pervy and people are going to think it's based on me. And people have like people are like, oh, who's this character based on or whatever. And I've heard. Um, and it's always funny, the, like, because obviously there's stuff from my life that is in the book, but it's always funny what 
the guesses people make and they're like oh this is clearly based on that and it's always so wrong it's always so far removed from mm-hmm. what i was trying to so i was like which is kind of comforting i'm like oh i saw a quote from an interview with you about this very thing that i really connected with which was the idea that it's based on you in the sense that every character is based on you and even if they contradict each other that's also you well yeah um and i might be repeating what i said but um like she gets into conversation, my, my character Lucy gets into conversations and arguments with people where like, there's no clear resolution. And I'm like, oh, yeah, these are just conversations I have with myself. And it's so nice to like, just put them again, I had never written fiction before this, um, to like, not have a resolution or to not have a like, to not be writing a, a manifesto that I could just like, play out both sides of these conversations and attribute each side to a character or, or have a character fuck up and have someone else call her out on it and and be that voice of God. <laughs> and like Right, right. Um and also how people say to her things that she needed to hear when she needed to hear them. And some of that is, you know, wish fulfillment and and also to try to not have the easy like my my book actually does feel very wholesome and feels a little bit like a YA novel in that she does like there are a lot of neat resolutions in it. There are mm-hmm. a lot of like, the, she does get closure with a lot of people and she does hear what she needs to hear at certain points. And, and um, which is funny because like my book is marketed as a like slutty whatever, <laughs> but yeah. it, does, it does feel very like, I hope people feel good reading it. And it does have this like, what I what I perceive to be a happy ending. Um, and I did want it to feel cozy, like watching a, sitcom is a bad example because like you know sitcoms are so motivated by you know television is motivated by so many other things and appeasing so many different players but you know the when you watch a sitcom and you're like hanging out with your six best friends at their cool apartment and and there's a little heartwarming moment at the end um that kind of comfort I did want to right like I do feel my book is very normy for considering it's like marketed as like a cult sex whatever not 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 cult and sex are two different like a cult novel and a and a sex novel not like I mean I'm not marketing it it's not marketed to 15 year olds but I'm like yeah if if I read it in high school I would have been able to follow it and get something out of it and in terms of the book you're writing now you've said you're you're actually doing like research like genuine outside your brain research outside your own sort of cultural awareness research when I started writing it, I was writing it as a sequel just because I was like, I don't like when I started writing my first book, I was not writing it with the intention of of writing a book. Um, and then I just kind of like I was writing just a couple of scenes and then it kept growing from there. And then I was like, oh, well, I did that by complete accident. I don't actually know how to write a book. So I started writing another one with the same characters kind of set a few years in the future, uh, in the future of the events of the first book. And that was like a nice place to start. I'd be like, what are they doing now? And what struggles are they facing? And I wrote about 20,000 words of that in the same voice and the same cadence. But then I have since decided not to make the sequel. Um, What made you make that decision? my agent (laughs) 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 but it was well well, well, she was I I got a new agent in between the lot but like you know my my book did well in Canada but didn't really have a a U.S. like flying books ended up distributing it in the U.S. but I I had only really sold the Canadian rights and my new agent is you know 
working on it from the business end and was like, you, you know, this is going to be your North American debut and it's going to be a harder sell. But also when she said that it was a bit of a relief because I was trying to figure out my, my, it was mostly my protagonist was the same and, but there were new characters and then I had to come up with stories for all the other characters and where they were and what was going on with them. And I didn't have that for everyone. I wasn't as interested. And so when um, I decided not to do through the urging of my, my, my <laughs> to not do a sequel, it was a little bit of a freedom where I was like, okay, I can scrap trying to figure out what these characters are doing that makes sense with them because there's other stuff I wanted to do. And by then I had had 20,000 words of kind of exploring different plot points with new characters that she meets. And now the challenge right now is finding a different voice like the first book was written first person from the protagonist and the book I'm working on now like the protagonist does bear a lot of similarities to Lucy and to me um although she's not me um in a way that I need to come up with a better analogy but I'm like you know the same way that Woody Allen's movies all had that like right right yeah I'm sure I mean I'm so far far away from having a second book right now but I imagine people are being like, oh, she's just doing the same thing again. But I do feel like I'm just exploring similar topics in different ways and, you know, playing with them and I have more to say. And I don't think there's anything wrong with with riffing on some ideas. So, yeah, trying to figure out the voice of this next book is a bit of a challenge. But being able to, like, have new characters and do them in different directions and to not be beholden to what I was doing in the first book was is also it, it was the same it was the same realization I had when I was writing my first book and I was like oh this is made up I can do whatever I want I'm not doing journalism here mm-hmm. it's freedom so like starting it as a sequel was a good constraint to just get me started because it can be so daunting when you don't know where to start of course but, yeah um and I'm glad that I did that and I'm glad that I was like figuring out plot points and putting her in situations and and developing these new characters but now that I have a start I can kind of go in a different direction um and it has been very slow uh because I'm figuring out a lot but yeah no I I'm the my new protagonist I'm talking to people with different like I mean little things like she's a barista and I interviewed my best friend and I was like tell me the like I was a barista very briefly in my 20s and I was terrible at it and I did not last long but my my friend who worked at like trending cafes I was like hey tell me like about your life and your regulars and let me cannibalize you for my book but um I'm still in the early stages of of talking to people but just interviewing people about their careers for jobs that characters have or their relationship models for different things and I just like I mean it's what I loved about journalism and writing I've talked about how I love researching and like learning about each thing but I love talking to people about their experiences especially people who don't usually give interviews like I've interviewed celebrities I've interviewed actors and and musicians and those are always the the bylines that people get excited over like when I when I publish people like oh my god you talked to so-and-so but like those people are always so media trained and have done so many interviews and they have the prepared answers and the prepared responses. And and I mean, you can get some cool conversations out of that. And I'm, but like the best interviews I always did were the, like just talking to people about their experiences or people who worked in weird industries who, and like people in my experience are just so like, I have interviewed people about personal dark shit. I mean, it's what we're doing. You're asking me questions and I'm like, hell yeah, let me talk to you. Let me tell you about my (laughs) story and my trauma because it's so People like talking about themselves and people like 
sharing their experiences. And I, I always try and be conscious of the, the power dynamic that I'm going to be in control of the narrative and shaping that. And, and there's a, so much to be said about, you know, ethics and journalism and having someone else's story, but I have been doing it for 15 years. I don't even know how long, whatever. So being able to do that with a novel is different, but it is also, it's reporting. It's talking to people and and it's been fun to do that in terms of that power differential in interviews i should warn you i'm going to edit this whole interview so that it lands with you saying you're like you're just like woody allen yeah <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, sure that's where we're headed my, make sure yeah you, you put in that i don't have student loans that i that i'm woody allen and that i something something sex fault so yeah, yeah i was actually going to say that in support of this idea that like this next book so far at least is is not like this massive radical departure from Ooh. from Good Girl because I we I feel like we romanticize artists who recreate themselves. We all have this like sure D David Bowie thing or something. You know, we all we all want like th this last one is this next new one's nothing like the last one. Whereas when I look at my bookshelves or mm -hmm. the music I like, I like people who do like interesting variate like they found a thing. Yeah. And then um, they develop it. They keep developing. And you don't want to have like ACDC all over the place where it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. But, you know, Muriel Spark didn't write the complete a completely different book each time. It was variations on a on approach, on a vision, on a perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting having my book come out and be marketed. And it's always lumped in with with books that like, especially in social media, especially with the, the way that things are um reduced to an aesthetic or a vibe um where it's like hashtag hot girl books or sad girl books um right. which are right. I feel like I've, I feel like I've probably said this in like every interview I've done but it's it's um it is a thing that I've noticed because like my book will be grouped in with other books that were published around the same time which because of the nature of fiction like I don't um you know I had no idea about these books while I was working on mine because and like I mean there are trendy books that I like I I there are books that I've read that I clearly owe a debt to whether consciously or not like I mean I've read Sheila Hetty I've read um I mean for some reason I can't think of a single other author right now I'm looking around my room but like I've read Tamara Faithberg or I've read like all these those are specifically Toronto authors but the, there are obvious influences on someone of my demographic like millennial lefty white lady queer you know just like I, yeah, I yeah. doesn't belong to a type um but I also when you see what books you're included in a roundup in and people are like oh I'm so sick of these books or or the the favorite is like when they're like oh every book is about this now every book is about like a, a you know a woman in her 20s figuring out her shit and I'm like they're really not like there's so many books published every year um, and there's so many people writing and there's so many small presses. And I mean, there are conversations to be had about what books get prioritized and privileged and, and whatever. But like, I, I think about the novels that I've read this year. And yes, there are some that could be people in my demographic, except in Brooklyn, which is trendier or, or whatever. But I've read 
so many interesting books in translation or from different pockets of the world. And there's so many people doing cool shit. And I wish there were more of them. And that is that does speak to what does get published. But I'm like, there are so many books that are just begging to be read and begging for more attention. And it's funny that these roundups of like cool millennial girl books will always start with like the big three are like Otessa Moshfeg, Sally Rooney and Alif Batuman who are all wildly different books, who all write yeah. very different things, um, but happen to be like cool young women. Um, and I've read all their books. I've read a lot of their books and I've, I've loved what they're doing, but there are also so many other things being published. There's so, there's so much, there's so much. And there's so, and the beauty of books is you don't even have to read what's new. You can read old shit because it's, it's all there. And um, so I don't, to get back to like, and I, and I have a lot of respect for authors as well who do reinvent themselves. I interviewed Emma Donahue for Chatelaine this summer and every book she does is so fucking different. Absolutely, like yeah. Period pieces set in different, and like, it was fun talking to her about that. And she talked about her process and how the reason she's so prolific is she always feels like when she gets bored of one thing, she'll go somewhere else and she'll work on multiple things at once. And it's such a, I have infinite respect for her and her career. And I don't mind saying she's a better writer than I am. And if you're like, yeah, I, I have no bones about that. But like, I just feel that when people get frustrated of someone doing the same thing over and over again, and maybe I'm saying this because I'm doing that and I, I need to justify what I am doing, but whatever. Um, I am like, there were so, there were like 8 billion humans on the planet. And I am of the theory that as many people as possible should be making art however they can. And I think if you're bored of the books that are being published, that is a sign to spend some time looking at other books or digging through like the finding cool writers and finding cool books and putting, putting the time into, yeah learn about cool shit which is all I've ever wanted to do and I don't like I, I don't want to discount the fact that like when there is a very popular book publishers will be like oh let's do more of this or they'll scramble and things, go find it yeah or there are things that are easier sells or there are things that do get like so many so much of my success of good girl on social media has been it has a cool cover and people love the cover and they it'll be in a tableau with a latte and a cool magazine and whatever and the comments will be like oh this is so aesthetic I love it and you know like there there is so many factors in and I, and I don't want to discount the institutional factors that do shut out certain voices and um because it's all very real but when people but there there are also indie presses who are doing really cool shit and who need the support and need the readers and need the attention. And I, I if I was more prepared, I would be listing them right now. But <laughs> I'll insert that but, later. You can, like, you can like, send but, that to me separately and I'll just but, insert yeah, it. Yeah, like I do want, I do wish people did not just, like sometimes I see the people who are frustrated at all books being the same are the ones that show a lack of curiosity in their own um, own reading. And maybe that's not fair to say, um, but yes, I, when you work in publishing, you are aware of how many people are, you know, trying to get their stuff read. And so when I hear people say that there, there isn't enough to read, I'm like, yes, there is, go, go find them. <laughs> what Happened Next is produced and edited by me, 
The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.